Welcome to Fireside with VoxGig, a podcast for professional and aspiring public speakers. I'm your host, Richard Roger, the founder of VoxGig.com, an online community for speakers and event professionals. We're here to help you get the most out of speaking, organizing, exhibiting, and attending. In each episode, we sit down for an intimate fireside chat with people in the public speaking community to learn how they have mastered the art of getting up on stage and speaking in front of an audience. If you're an aspiring speaker or just want to improve your onstage performance, this podcast will help you learn from some of the most accomplished and interesting professional conference speakers. And finally, before we begin, a quick shout out and thank you to simplecast.com, first and last word in podcasts, who have kindly come on board as our first ever sponsor. In this episode, I speak to Dervla Graham, who I have had the very great pleasure of seeing speaking live. Unlike a great many of our guests, I only ever see them on YouTube. Dervla is an amazing speaker and can also do things like stand-up comedy, of which I am in awe. Dervla takes us on her journey to becoming a life celebrant, which means she speaks for a living. All the way from her early days in drama up to joining Toastmasters and then really embracing speaking as a profession. So without further ado, let's get started. Dervla, welcome to the Fireside with Box Gig podcast. I am delighted to finally have you on the show. Thank you, Richard. I'm delighted to be on the show. And for our listeners, Dervla is an absolutely amazing contributor to the Box Gig podcast. She writes our show notes and uh, has also been a, a little bit of an inspiration to me. I started the Box Gig newsletter with Dervla's own newsletter in the back of my mind. So thank you very much, Dervla. Wow, I didn't know that. Absolutely. Flattered. You got to copy the best out there. Thanks. And it's certainly been great. I have also had uh, the privilege of seeing you speak. And with a lot of people who are guests on the podcast, I often don't get to do that. All I've seen is them speaking on uh, YouTube and places like that. Yeah. But I have had the privilege of seeing you speak at events. Hopefully, we'll eventually get back to events in person soon enough. I have all the material gathered, you know, just waiting for the moment when I can get my notice again. Waiting to go. You're very good. How did you get so good? Um, I don't know. I, like, um, I suppose with practicing my skills, I just really believe in delivering words well. I just love words and I love saying them. And I just get a kick out of even just saying them. And I just really want, want to say them as well as I can. You write as well, right? So did, did the writing yeah. come first or, or, and then the speaking? I think half the reason why I like writing, I can't lie, is because y- you get attention yeah. when you see the kick of the enjoyment of the audience because I'm a bit unusual as a writer in that I'm a bit of a diva as well. And I like an audience, whereas the character trait associated with being a writer is quite introverted and sort of staying in a little room. And But I discovered you can just get a real kick out of saying your words to in front of a group of people. It's an amazing privilege. As I was saying to you before, I grew up in a large family. You had to fight for your 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 corner to speak, and here here you are speaking in front of a crowd, and they're listening to you, and they're responding to you, and it is the greatest high that you can get without the aid of chemicals, isn't it? I mean, for people who are thinking of speaking or, or haven't done it yet, it's strange to think that you might have a fear of the audience when, in fact. What I found, once you sort of develop the skill a little bit and, and you're a little bit more comfortable with getting them on stage, the audience is your friend. Yeah, that's right. I found that two things are true, which are contradictory, but at the same time, very comforting. The audience aren't really paying that much attention to you because they're thinking about their lunch or yeah. they had to leave their yeah. child with the childminder and they're hoping the child is okay and stuff like that. 
not paying that much attention to you, but at the same time, they wish you well and they're thinking about how they'd feel if they were up there. So they're they're rooting for you and they don't notice the big clangor that you made that you think is really obvious. Isn't that so true? Like because in your own head, like your perception of time and everything, because there's adrenaline going on, time slows down when you're on stage. Yeah. And that's why you have to pause unnaturally long amounts of time and then <laughs> you fluff something or you forget entire sections of your talk. And you think it's gone horribly wrong, but the audience hasn't noticed because the audience doesn't know, do they? No, because you skip forward to another part and then you come back and they don't realize. They haven't a clue. They didn't, yeah, they didn't know in advance. No. You did Toastmasters as well. Is that, is that where you learned the skill? I suppose you could say that. I did. Actually, when I was at school, we had a speech and drama teacher. Uh, that was actually where I got my first taste of public speaking. A lovely woman called Mrs. Hearn herself and her husband, both great teachers, both still alive and well in Clan Mel. She taught in our school and yeah, she put us forward for the speech and drama awards and the Royal Academy ones, you know, and I did manage to get a silver medal when I was in uh, fifth year. So I was, oh, I was delighted that. Well done. Thanks. So the, the achievement still warms me all of, was it 25 years later? Ah! Amazing how that <laughs> stuff is all, is, is somehow in a way more important than exams and all, all that other nonsense. Yeah. But that's kind of the achievement I remember from from school. All right, you know that I worked on this speech and I managed to deliver it, and I had to read a bit of dialogue from well, a, a bit of uh, an extract from a novel as well, and I, ma- I managed it all anyway. So it was it was good. And then I suppose I kind of stopped speaking for ages while I was doing other stuff. But I was involved with radio, which I suppose is the kind of speaking. But with regard to actually speaking, I dabbled with Clan Melto's masters for a while, and I really liked it. And then a few years later, a lot of people were a lot older at the time. So I thought I'd wait a few years and I came back and they were still a lot older, but I joined anyway. And it was the most fantastic experience of my life, pretty much. I was in Waterford Toastmasters for nine years. Now, I know a lot of your listeners listening internationally would join Toastmasters for kind of business reasons Mm. or improving themselves as a business speaker. I joined it for social reasons and just, I think it was really just for social reasons. But I suppose along the way, I did gain speaking skills. Because I can do the speaking part and the words, no problem. But things like, you know, your body language and props and things like that, that wouldn't come naturally to me. That was what I learned in, in through speaking in Toastmasters and the feedback that I got. Right. It's kind of the the unknown unknowns, I suppose. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, all those little, little ingredients, that's yeah. the full package. I was in competitions with them as well. And the speeches that tended to go higher were the ones with an element of performance in them where people had a prop. Right something like that. And uh, the competitions for a nerd like me who was crap in the sports field, it was a great chance to kind of win stuff. Yeah. yeah. So uh, I won a few prizes at those, which was great. And you, you travel to other clubs and meet other people and just all the people that I met, just I met the most ama- amazing people. Then like that, you got to speak about things that you were interested in. You decide the topic. So I spoke about the things I was interested in. And that just kind of, like, you know, when you speak about something that you're interested in, I think that helps overcome nerves as well. Yeah, it's funny. I never did Toastmasters. I suppose maybe had this biased opinion that it was a little bit fuddy-duddy maybe or something like that. But I've, having spoken to many people now that have got great results from it, it's... It's, it's quite structured and formal, but it's, good. it's a good discipline because oddly yeah. enough, in later years, the club became less structured and formal. And I actually just, it's just the way it was. I was suiting the people that were in it. But I kind of found that the structure, the good things that came with the structure kind of went as well. You know, so it does help, mm. you know, with timing, with giving good evaluations to people, not just, oh, that was lovely. Yeah. So for somebody thinking of doing it, it's kind of, 
Each group is different, maybe, and it might be better to seek out the ones that are a little more structured. Well, that's it. If you're doing it for business reasons, there could just be ones that are better. I think the club did become a bit more like that in later years, and it's it's still going. And I think the people who go now, that's what they want. You know, they want they want it for business, really, uh, for for their jobs. Because I suppose you could say the element of socialness started to decline, and then it lost its appeal for me. Then, yeah, because. You know, the people who were in it before were in it for the, the community of it and they were involved in building the community of Toastmasters. And that, that just changed. But it could it probably suited the people. It suits the people who are in it now. Yeah, I hope this is an important point, right? Because um, if you're thinking of getting into speaking for your career, and it is a fabulous way to grow your career, and you go to Toastmasters and you, it doesn't suit you, you don't like it, well, that's just one group. Try another. Yeah, I think there's a reluctant speakers club as well. There are other types of yeah, speaking clubs. Yeah, yeah. And people find, like, I've, I know people who've done it, who have got into it for business, and they'd be nervous about speaking. They'd have to do high-level presentations in their job. And Toastmasters is a step up. It's like you practice first in front of a group of people who are friendly, and it's a bit more informal, and there's nothing at stake, and, you know, they're going to give you good feedback. But they find it's a bit of a, a nerve melter. Yeah, yeah. It's so challenging. I mean, it, it really is if you haven't done it before. I mean, I um, have been involved in several technology startup companies. And what goes along with that game is inevitably the, the pitches to investors, you know, and that's not speaking in front of a, a large audience, but it's very high stakes. And you're sitting there with your PowerPoints or whatever, and um, the audience is not going to be friendly. <laughs> uh, I've seen many people oh, struggle God. with it. I've struggled with myself. It's awful. And I think that's something like uh, something like Toastmasters, where you've got this. Um, you can start friendly, I guess, is is a good thing. That's it. Yeah, if you're easing yourself into speaking, I think it's a good step up into it. I've never really had to speak to an audience that was unfriendly. I've done creative writing classes with very silent people, all right. But um, no, I, I can't imagine how it would be now to yes. speak to an audience. You know, are kind of hostile to you. Well, they kind of actively try to take you down, and and I mean. Just to kind of go into that a little bit further, the types of things you'd encounter in those types of presentations would either make your blood boil or reduce you to tears. I mean, half your audience might be there on their phones reading their email because they've decided not to give oh. you any money and that's just it. It's a waste of time listening to you. And you can tell. You have people who are genu- genuinely mean. You know, if you've watched Dragon's Den, it's, it's that kind of carry on. Yeah. Which oh. I, I can't watch Dragon's Den. It gives me PTSD. <laughs> oh, God. Sometimes, of course, you've been brought in by one of the partners. You know, you're their kind of baby and they're, they're giving you the softball questions. But that's about as good as it gets. Right. You uh, also do. I've also seen you do stand-up comedy. And I have to say, respect, that's just, we're not worthy level stuff. <laughs> I've done a lot of speaking at conferences. I've got a few laughs on a few occasions. But I've seen you do a stand-up comedy show. Yeah. What was that like? I mean, in terms of producing the material and delivering it, what are the similarities and differences to, to your usual talks? You see, it wasn't that different from Toastmasters. Right. And I think that's how I managed to get myself to stand up on the stage. Because Toastmasters is a category called humorous speeches, where you deliver a message ah. in a humorous way and you'd, you'd go in for a competition for it. I treated it like that in my head. If I had called it stand-up comedy, and I still don't regard myself as a stand-up comedian, I just regard, I regard myself as someone who performs my writing. I, if I were to start calling myself a stand-up comedian, I'd never get up. So I do have great respect for those people who are, you know, getting up and calling themselves stand-up. And they write differently. They write to a punchline or they kind of weave the punchline in and out as they're going along. Mine is just humorous observations. I was included in a night that was billed as a stand-up night and I was delighted to be part of it. 
I've thought about what made us so successful because it was one of the speaking highlights of my entire life. And I can't pin it down, which is annoying. I don't know if you ever find out that when you get something right, yeah. you don't quite yeah. know what you did. So the, the only conclusion I can come to is, I suppose I didn't think about it too much and it evolved over time. It started off, uh, it was all about, you know, how I don't like going to the hairdressers and I don't like going to clothes shops, which are things associated with women that women enjoy and I don't enjoy them. And I thought, I kept thinking about that and I thought, I'll, I'll write about that because I got fed up with just thinking about it. And it started off as two separate pieces. I performed them at separate times and Petra Kindler heard one of them. She was the woman who set up the Witty Women Stand Up Night and um, she, she thought it was hilarious. And then when she was setting up Witty Women, she asked me to be part of the lineup. And I thought, well, I'll put the two pieces together about the clothes shops and the hairdressers because they kind of are similar in theme. And when I did that, then I discovered that, you know, well, they, they, they fit well together. And then I just wrote the material over the summer, let it sit. And then I learned it all off. And then I, I just did it on the night and just everything just fell together on the night. I had you and a couple of people from your end and I just had loads of supporters and then there was a big audience and they were really generous and, you know, I've been spoiled. I can't imagine what it'd be like to be a stand-up comedian oh stands up and nobody laughs. <laughs> I've done two more, well, they were called Women of Wit after that in Dublin and um, I had a good That's reception brilliant. of those as well. So I've been lucky. I haven't had that thing where I've cracked a joke and people haven't laughed. I think when it does happen, I'll run away. I've had a muted yeah. reaction to my pieces sometimes. I think I've not too many speaking disasters now, really, where I'd just be, you know, ru- running away with my hands over my ears. I guess, you know, because I haven't had to speak, like I said, in front of an audience who are kind of antagonistic. That is an interesting point, Dervler, right? So pick your audience as well, right? <laughs> pick for the audiences. I suppose. <laughs> I haven't gone too far beyond my comfort zone. <laughs> People often ask me, uh, you know, especially in the tech side of things, how do I get started speaking? And um well, of course, before the, the coronavirus, I would have recommended going to um, these small meetups, you know, where there's just 20 or 30 people and they're sort of guaranteed to be friendly. Mm-hmm. It's a good place to start. I'm also intrigued by uh, another aspect of your speaking, which is you have an interesting perspective because you speak as someone who has uh, a visual impairment. Yeah. And I'd have to say, I think there are certain aspects of being visually impaired that make it easier for you to be a speaker. Yeah. First of all, you have no choice but to memorize everything because you can't really read your own notes unless they're right. Well, some people can't read any print at all. I can read it, but it's right in front of my face, which means there's a barrier between me and the audience. So if I want to communicate with the audience, I have to memorize everything. And I don't know if it's the most effective way, but I just repeat everything over and over again until I have it. I was going to ask you, yeah, what your technique was. Yeah. Sheer bloody mindedness. <laughs> yeah. You know, there's no real technique. I just read every paragraph two times and repeat it. And then I read the next paragraph. I read it over three times and repeat it. And I add it to the previous paragraph. And I do that until I have it all finished. But I do it. I, I can't leave things to the last minute just the way I am. So I kind of spread it out o- over time. And then when I have it all learned off, I polish it. And then I do it for timing. And I put gestures in. And then I practice it in front of my husband who writes things down while I'm talking, which is good. If you're practicing, I'd recommend practicing your speech in front of one person. Because one person doesn't really react. Yeah. So it gives you practice for if you're in front of an audience who doesn't react. I've got a sister-in-law, for example, who doesn't really laugh at sort of scripted jokes. She does have a sense of humor, of course, but she doesn't really laugh at scripted jokes. So I do pieces in front of her and she doesn't laugh. And it's good practice. So you have no choice but to be polished. I like that. I'd hope so. Yeah. So you're, you're memorizing everything. So that kind of helps. Although I would say I have come across some speakers who are great at just using their notes in a way that makes it look like they're not using their notes. 
it was one of my Toastmasters club. It was like that. And she won loads of medals and everything, competitions. She never let her notes down, but she knew how to use them so they didn't block her delivery. So she was an amazing speaker that way. The other thing about being visually impaired is that it reduces your nerves uh, yeah. because there's two things about it, right? You can't really see the audience properly. Now I can see pretty well for a visually impaired person. So I know the audience are there and I know there's faces and that, yeah. but they're kind of blobby. I can't really see them looking at me. They're just, they turn into one amorphous blob. So that's grand. I don't have that same sensation of all these eyes looking at me. And then the other thing that kind of happens is that sometimes the venue, the actual method of getting to the speaking arena can be a bit tricky. So I find myself thinking a lot more about that than I do about the speaking. Yeah, once you're there. Speaking can be the easy part. I've had that with, oddly enough, with weddings when I've read bits out, bits and pieces out at weddings. I had, I remember, in a church in Tremor, climb up two steps and then one step on an altar. They weren't even three steps together. They were two steps and then one step. And I made the mistake of wearing high heels. I hardly ever do, but I felt I should because it was a wedding. And it was two steps and then one step. So I was okay going up. And luckily on the way down... I was, um, the woman who was with me knew about my condition. She gave me her elbow. So there was no nasty incident. But reading after that <laughs> that's like, yeah. is just so easy. Yeah, yeah. That's a great perspective to have, isn't it? You can't let um, things like that kind of blow themselves out of proportion in your mind. That brings me to another thing that um, I find really interesting about your kind of speaking career is um, you've recently become a, what's known as a life celebrant. Tell me about that. Yeah, that's right. That's been amazing. Derva Graham Life Celebrant is the brand, but officially I'm an independent celebrant, which means I trained as a celebrant with the Irish Institute of Celebrants. And there's different types of celebrants, but as an independent celebrant, I'm not associated with any belief system or legal body or anything like that. It gives people total freedom to have whatever ceremony they want with no restrictions. And so that appealed to me when I was looking it up. But what gave me the idea was that I suppose because of my speaking background and writing background, people ask me to say stuff at special occasions yeah. that had already been happening. And my brother said, will you officiate at my son's baby naming, that being my nephew? And I just said, yeah. And I didn't see it as any different from anything I do public speaking wise. So again, I memorized everything. I looked it all up on the internet. I put it all together. And when I spoke that day, it was just mind blowing. And not even just because of my glory of speaking and that. It was just to see the effect the words were having on the people there and the meaning that I was in a position to convey about what this meant. This was my brother's son, and he was being introduced to the world as a unique person with this incredible past behind him and this incredible future ahead of him. And it was just the most mind-blowing sensation to know that I had played a role in bringing that about. And straight away afterwards, my family were like, are you going to, be, are you going to do this as a yeah. living? I'm like, I totally am. And it just it was like it was like a thunderclap. Was like, and if you know me, I, I love my food and I love a couple of drinks, and I could barely taste anything that day. I was just so kind of blown away by this. So I found a course that suited me. I qualified first as a family celebrant, which is for weddings, baby naming, say family theme celebrate uh, ceremony, and then I qualified as a funeral celebrant just as the coronavirus thing was going off in at the beginning of March. Yeah. Are you under uh, a bit of a hiatus at the moment? It's a funny thing. I've actually had time to work on my celebrant business since I qualified in September. It had been kind of a struggle just due to different things that had just happened. But then when work slowed down with the crisis, I had time to devote to putting into my business and I've secured two or three bookings because I don't know, I suppose people are still dreaming of the future. So they're still looking around at celebrants and that. I just worked on I suppose building relationships, working on my website, things 
what I could do to keep things going. I haven't done a funeral yet, but I'm working with a crowd of my fellow funeral celebrants to develop an association funeral celebrants to give, because celebrancy is a new profession. Some of your listeners is probably well-established. It's well-established in Australia, America, and even England, but in Ireland, it's relatively new. So it, we need to build credibility. And so the association will help with that. This is all stuff I wouldn't have had the time to do otherwise. Yeah, it's funny. You, 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 it is kind of giving us the time to, to sort of somebody, somebody hit the, the pause button on the world and you can kind of <laughs> get your plans in order. Yeah. You're, so you're blazing another trail with this. Hopefully. I suppose there, there's been a few different types already, you know, but, but, you know, hopefully, I'm hoping like maybe in five years time, there'll be more regular kind of income out of it or regular opportunities to do it. People will be more aware of what celebrants can do and that it is a credible profession. That's why I wanted to train. Like I could have, I could have set myself up as a celebrant straight after that baby naming. Everything like that is a skill, isn't it? I mean, it's important to recognize. Yeah. It's not even like you have to have a qualification to have that skill, but it just shows people that you put time and money, let's face it, into improving yourself in that area. You care for it as a, as a skill. I'm sure you'll be wonderfully successful. I mean, having, having seen you do a few of those, I have to say, if I messed up a professional talk at a conference, it would be embarrassing professionally and my, my boss would uh, not be happy. Mm. But, you know, in the greater scheme of things, there's no great shakes. But if, if you messed up a talk at somebody's wedding or a baby naming, I mean, that's a big deal. I, I would just, yep. I mean, that would really make me nervous. <laughs> I do not know what I will do. I will just have to take, we're taught breathing and relaxation exercises. So I was joking with you about breathing before that. So we're, we're taught that and I just have to remember, I'm supposed to be doing my voice exercises every day. I must, I must get back to it. Just kind of switch into that mode of then breathing a few times and then find some bit of the speech that you remember and just carry on and hope that either no one notices or that people forgive you. And I think if they see you carrying on, you just that you will get their respect. And we've also been told never to apologize. That's a really interesting minor point, actually. I see speakers do this all the time. You know, the, the wrong slide comes up or they fluff their lines or something and then they start apologizing. I, I don't think that's the right thing to do, is it? No, it isn't. It's understandable, but it, it, it isn't because nobody noticed yeah. the slide. Yeah. Now it's all they'll see. What I'm actually more concerned about with regard to weddings and any kind of ceremonies, I suppose I have to think a lot more about it swings and roundabouts. Some people are petrified of speaking and they'd be really practical and good at the logistics. I have to think more about the logistics, partly because of my sight and partly because of my personality. But there's all logistics about setting up a room, making sure it's all laid down yeah. correctly, making sure that everybody is positioned correctly. And as a celebrant, you're kind of the ringmaster. You're in charge of all that. That I find far more intimidating than the speaking aspect. Yeah, and it's a new venue each time. So do you go to the venue ahead of time? And Well, you're, yeah, you're told to kind of go two hours ahead. You know, well, I actually, I officiated since uh, qualified, I officiated at my sister's wedding. And that was, um, so I, I was able to, but, you know, it was a family one, so I wasn't able to go as early as I would have liked. But, you know, I, I dressed up in, in my suit before I left the house. And, you know, I, I went and then I kind of made sure I was able to make sure that everything was, was was laid out. So that was grand. And I suppose because it was my sister's wedding, there were times where, you know, I was had to light candles. And I was like trying to see, is the candle lit now? My sister could have leaned over and said, that's lit now, Durbla. <laughs> so if it, it would have been a professional wedding, it might have been a bit different. But. Yeah. At least as technology speakers, we don't have to light candles on stage. I've never seen, never seen anybody do that. Uh, 
no, I, I, I know. I, I'd be hoping maybe in the future to get away with electric candles. That'd be brilliant. No, but yeah, I, I, that's really what I'd have to spend time. Well, I did practice my exam that way. But if I have a ceremony, I will practice it with the table and I'll practice lighting candles and I'll practice tying ribbons around myself when I'm doing a hand fasting. If just in case you this is our familiar Celtic hand fasting, you um you tie ribbons oh, lovely, around yeah, a couple yeah. of hands and um or, or or cord and to show that they're freely chosen to come together and you know well in the Celtic times it was that you were married for a year and a day and then you could decide whether to renew it. But this oh that's sensible. Yeah, I know, eminently sensible. And then you could review it after three years and then after seven years, by which time life expectancy being what it was, it probably wasn't a problem by then. Yeah. That's a that's a very sensible system. It is indeed, yeah. Very civilized. These would have been sort of Roman times up to the Middle Ages, I guess, in Ireland. Yeah, well, certainly Celtic times, probably yeah. up to the arrival of St. Patrick in Ireland. Then obviously Christian traditions took over at that point. But I suppose it's an odd way. I think we're kind of referring a bit to Celtic Ireland the way the, the way we are. So I think part of that is that hand fasting has become very popular. And yeah, it is a lovely thing to do. You tie ribbons, you say nice words, and couples can pick ribbons or cords that are significant to them. Um, my sister chose um, and her partner chose, um, you know, GAA cords. And, you know, so temporary <laughs> limerick rivalry, good. we were able to play on that. <laughs> and now they were oh, united lovely, yeah. for the sake of the wedding. So, but I, I, pra- I practiced that and that went grand, but I had to practice tying the ribbon and saying the words at the same time. And it just, so, just so I could imagine it was happening as close as possible to it. It's funny, all, I mean, all we have to do is make sure we're pressing the forward or backwards buttons properly for it. <laughs> and it's amazing how often you can get that wrong. Yeah. So that's why it is possible. I mean, I, I have weddings now at the moment. I'm very happy to do them. Yeah, yeah. That's more challenging, isn't it? Um, you are concentrating more on the words and, and the the words are more challenging. But oddly enough, I'd be more comfortable with, with that, you know, because I would, would hope that I can deliver words the way they're supposed to be delivered. I wouldn't have to be thinking as much about, um, I, I might have to light candles, but it might be more that I'd ask yeah. a family member to come up and light a candle. You know, because if you're doing it at a crematorium and there's only 20 minutes for the ceremony, you know, there isn't that much time. So it is really all about the words for a funeral. Whereas for a wedding, there are these colorful rituals that you do. Just depends on the type of ceremony. So I think funerals, just purely from that point of view, might well suit me. You seem to be very uh, flexible in the types of speaking style that you can manage. I mean, probably the confidence of having done the more formal learning through Toastmasters probably helps with that. I hope so. I hadn't really thought thought about that. I mean, it will be a question of watching it evolve and seeing what ser- types of ceremonies I'm comfortable with. I may well discover that some ceremonies just don't really suit me and then other ones do suit me more and I can decide to specialize. But at the moment, I'm interested in them all, trying them all out and trying out family ceremonies as well, which I've never heard of. It's an evolving thing. It's more like celebrating a family. I, I see them as being for couples where they don't really want it to be about them there's no boundary between them and their children. So if they're having a wedding, they nearly want it to just be a family ceremony. So it's like you do loads of rituals as a family. I'm doing one virtually next month. Wow. Okay. Yeah, the virtual stuff. <laughs> yeah, I know. I don't know how I'm going to get on. Because again, well, that's involved yeah. a lot of practicing with equipment. Well, I have to say, I, I absolutely wish you all the best for um, the celebrant activities. Wonderful weddings. And I hope the funerals go well. One shouldn't wish for them, I suppose. But um, I do hope they go well when they happen. I do hope I can give some comfort to people. I'd be interested in the challenge as a speaker, but I also think out of all the branches of celebrancy, it's the one where you can make the most difference. Absolutely. Because you're saying the words that will hopefully guide people through the worst time of their life. Oh, no, I, I think it is a very, very important thing. 
Dervla, thank you so much. This has been an absolute delight and a very interesting perspective and very inspirational. Thank you. Thanks, Richard. Thank you so much for listening. Just a few things before the embers fade and we wrap up another episode of the Fireside with VoxGig podcast. You can find notes and links from this podcast at voxgig.com slash podcasts. We also publish a weekly newsletter on public speaking, selecting the best advice and techniques from some of the world's greatest speakers, both ancient and modern. Rhetoric is an old and revered art, not especially easy to master, but a skill like any other, and one you can also learn. Visit voxgig.com slash speakers to subscribe. If you've enjoyed this fireside chat, please consider subscribing to our podcast. Please also leave a review that helps us make this podcast even better. If you'd like to contact me directly, please email me, richard at voxgig.com. If you'd like to be counted as a supporter, just let me know and I'll add you to our supporters page. And one final reminder to check out our sponsor, simplecast.com, who helped make this podcast possible. Till next time, remember, take a deep breath, pause, and step forward. Pause.